turn with me, if you would please, to Matthew 8. And I want to read the passage that will be the subject of our study this morning. Matthew 8, beginning at verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. I'm sure that as you have read the gospel accounts, you have at some time wondered how it was possible for the people who heard Jesus teach just one time or saw only one of his miracles that they could fail to recognize him as the Messiah, Lord, and Savior. I know I have. It's even harder still to understand why people continued to reject the incomparable, gracious, loving Son of God after hearing him preach many times and seeing him heal dozens or perhaps hundreds of people of every sort of affliction. So it seems totally incredible that God's own chosen people who were given his covenant, his law, his prophets, and his many special blessings would reject the son of their own God, the Messiah, their own scriptures prophesied, the very deliverer whom they claimed to long and look for. And yet as you study the gospel accounts, you see that that is exactly how most of the Jews responded to Jesus. Their unbelief and rejection flew in the face of everything Christ did and said right in their midst. The, the proofs of his divinity, his power, his goodness were obvious and beyond contradiction. And yet, as the evidence increased, so did the resistance and rejection of Jesus. At the beginning of his gospel, John prepares us for that response, telling us in chapter 1, verse 11, that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. So from the beginning, Jesus knew that those who rejected him would exceed the number of those who accepted him. In John 5, 38 to 40, he told those who sought to kill him, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Those who rejected Jesus, even after witnessing his miracles, are like a judge or a jury who, after hearing an open and shut case, make a decision that's the exact opposite of what the evidence calls for. Jesus' authority was evident, as the people recognized from the very beginning of his ministry. Back in chapter 7, verse 29, after he finished the Sermon on the Mount, the people noted that he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. In fact, his teaching was so unique that in John 7, we're told about an incident where the scribes and the Pharisees sent their police officers to arrest him, but he came back empty-handed. They came back there without Jesus saying, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. After the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees questioned the man who had been born blind, 
about his healing by Jesus. The formerly blind man gave them a response, which is my personal favorite of all those that are recorded in Scripture. He said, well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And in John 7.15, the Jewish religious leadership was astounded at his teaching in the temple, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? In other words, he didn't go to one of our rabbinical schools to be educated in the law, so how is it that he knows it so exceptionally well? When representatives from the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that hated each other, joined up together to try to entrap him with a question about paying taxes to Caesar. He answered, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And his answer was so incredibly astute that it says upon hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. On another occasion, after he cast out a demon, the people said, nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. Everything about Jesus was astounding, marvelous, humanly unexplainable. It's no wonder that when people marveled at him but did not accept him, Jesus himself would marvel at their unbelief. I mean, just think about it. We marvel at their unbelief when we read about it. Can you imagine what it was like for him? He did everything to prove his divinity, to prove that he was the Messiah. He fed thousands from nothing but a boy's lunch. He opened blind eyes, healed lepers, cured paralytics, raised the dead, and taught with authority like no one had ever seen, and yet they still rejected him. You say, well, why did they do that? Well, Jesus answered that question. In John 3, 19 and 20, he told Nicodemus that some people run from the truth because it exposes their sin, which they do not want to give up. He said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So there were many people, including most of the Pharisees, who hated him, turned away from him, walked away. They loved their sin. They loved the darkness rather than the light. But then there were others who were attracted to the magnetism of his personality and his power to perform miracles. They were the thrill seekers. Their belief was superficial. They wanted to be thrilled but not changed, entertained but not saved. They came to have him heal their maladies and fill their bellies with food, but they had no staying power. They're like the seed that's sown on rocky soil, but they came. And in each case, something kept them from genuine conversion. Now here in our text of only five verses, Jesus gives two of the reasons why some people are never genuinely converted. Luke, in his account, gives us a third reason. Now you might wonder why Matthew includes this vignette here, especially since Mark leaves out these conversations entirely, and Luke, although he includes similar material, inserts it at a much later point in Christ's ministry. 
near about six months before the crucifixion. And the obvious answer is that Matthew wants to show that the same Jesus who has authority over sickness, nature, and demons also has authority over the lives of his disciples. Jesus determines what following him will involve, not us. Therefore, if you're going to follow Jesus, it must be on his terms rather than your own. And in these little stories of his interactions with potential disciples, Jesus illustrates for us three reasons why some people end up turning away from and never following him. Those three reasons are personal comfort, personal riches, and personal relationships. Let's begin by looking at the first one, the desire for personal comfort. Let's read again verses 18 to 20. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, first understand that this passage is linked chronologically to the verses that follow it, but not the verses before it. This is not the same evening that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. This is another evening. Jesus is somewhere along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, anywhere from Capernaum to Tiberias. The crowd has become so massive, and he administered so much to them that Jesus was weary in his physical body. So he gave orders to go across the lake to the region of the Gadarenes. In fact, on the boat ride across, he fell asleep in the back of the boat on the cushion that was there. He wanted to get away for a time of prayer and physical rest. Now, when he gave that command to go, it immediately pressed the issue of commitment upon some of the men who were there in the crowd. At this point, there were more and more people who were following him. And so when it was clear that he's leaving the area, uh, some of them decide that they want to follow him, but only under certain conditions. Some of these guys were at the very crux of a decision. Do I get in the boat and go or do I stay? What do I do? And there were three of them. Matthew only mentions two of them, but Luke adds a detail that there was a third guy whose issue was very similar to the second guy's problem, but we will deal with it separately. The first man was interested, but he never came to true salvation because he wanted personal comfort more than he wanted Christ. Verse 19, Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now that sounds really great, doesn't it? If I know the attitude of the twelve disciples, I'm sure at least a couple of them probably said, or at least were thinking, fantastic. Hey, Lord, this guy would be perfect. In fact, he's even a scribe. He's got religious training that none of us have. He could be a real help. You do realize who the scribes were, right? They were the authorities on the law. The scribes were the ones who were officially qualified by the Jewish authorities to teach. They were highly educated. The scribes were loyal to the system. They were closely related to the Pharisees. They were the teachers. They were not the followers of teachers. But generally, the scribes were hostile to Jesus. 
they generally join the Pharisees in their antagonism and opposition. So when you have a scribe being willing to follow Jesus, it's actually pretty amazing. He would have had to break with a majority of his fellow scribes if he had become a dedicated follower of Jesus. We don't know what his motive was in making this statement. Perhaps it was genuine, or perhaps he was testing Jesus to see how he would react to such an offer. The text doesn't give us enough information, so we can't say. But most Bible teachers think he was interested in following Christ because of how he addresses Jesus. He says, teacher. The Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word used here is rabbi. So that is quite an affirmation for him to make because the vast majority of the scribes and Pharisees would not refer to Jesus in that way because he had not been trained in a rabbinical school. So this guy says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. He doesn't put any conditions on it in his statement. The statement sounds very good. It's unconditional. What a tremendous statement of dedication and permanent commitment. He probably considered Jesus to be the greatest teacher he'd ever heard. He, he marveled at his authoritative teaching and miracles. He may have even recognized that Jesus' teaching and power were from God. And so he said to himself, this is unbelievable. This is fantastic. I want to get close to this guy. Wherever this guy is going, I want to go. He's amazing. Now, if this guy showed up in your typical evangelical church today, we'd say, how great. We'll take you right in. We're real eager to do that. Churches do that all the time. All it takes is a, some guy with a degree from some, kind, from some kind of Bible college, and many churches will have him teaching Sunday school within a matter of weeks. But Jesus wasn't so eager. Listen to what he said to him. Verse 20, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What a strange statement. I don't know, just out of the blue at first appearance, that sounds odd. But what Jesus is doing is telling this guy in proverbial form the basic comforts of life that even wild animals have, I don't have. Despite his divine authority and miracle working power, his plan did not include self-indulgence. And so he had fewer physical comforts than many animals. He didn't own a home. He was dependent on the hospitality of others, such as uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and others. But he, he wasn't, when he wasn't around their homes, he had to sleep outside on the ground. In Luke 8, it lists for us the women who he had healed of evil demonic spirits and sicknesses, who provided financially for his support. He didn't have any worldly possessions, so he has nothing to offer this guy. You say, well, then why did he bring that up? Because he could read this guy's mind. He knew what he was thinking. This guy's thinking, man, Jesus is doing so many wonderful things. He's providing health for people through his miracles. He understands the law better than any of my teachers. I've achieved so much in this life. I'm a scribe, so I've gained a lot of personal wealth and comfort. My life is going great. But if I join up with this guy, everything will be complete. I'll have everything I need to be satisfied in life. In other words, he's attempting to cash in on Jesus' popularity. And Jesus refuses to go along with that. You remember what John 2.23 tells us? It says, 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Sounds great, doesn't it? But then verses 24 and 25 say, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. You know what that means? It means that he had no faith in their faith. He knew it was shallow, superficial, and thrill-seeking. In fact, in the parable of the soils, he classified those kinds of people. He said there's some seed that lands on rocky soil and immediately it springs up, but because it has no depth of soil, when the sun comes up, it's scorched and it withers up and it dies. Those are the people who jump on the Jesus bandwagon. And at first, they look like they're alive for Christ, but as soon as persecution comes, as soon as it's not comfortable to be a Christian anymore, as soon as following Christ costs them the basic creature comforts of life, they want out. They run away and they stop following Christ and the truth is revealed about their heart that they were never truly regenerated in the first place. This scribe saw Jesus and he was magnetized. But Jesus knew human nature. He knew it was fickle and unstable and self-centered. He knew that human nature hungers for the sensational. So there was the crowd and the miracles and the excitement and the scribes fascinated. I love how Bible scholar R.C.H. Linsky described this scribe. He writes, he's an idealist enthusiastic, of sanguine temperament. He's superficial and does not count the cost. He sees the soldiers on parade, the fine uniforms and the glittering arms, and is eager to join, forgetting the exhausting marches, the bloody battles, the graves, perhaps unmarked. You see, for Jesus, this scribe is too ready, too eager, too quick to make his offer. He's like a seed on stony ground. It grows quickly, it lacks root, and it dies under the blazing sun of the price that has to be paid. You see, this man never understood the basic principle of discipleship, which is self-denial, sacrifice, suffering. So Jesus hit him with it. He said, I want you to understand one thing. You're not going to get any comfort out of this. You know what the next verse says about him? Nothing. It doesn't say anything about him. You know why? Because he isn't around. He left between verses 20 and 21. The Lord nailed him right where he was and he was out of there. How do we know that? Because you never hear another word in Scripture about a scribe being a follower of Christ. Isn't Jesus unlike us? We often sugarcoat the message about the cost of following Christ. We want to make it so... Everyone can get in as easy as possible. He makes it hard in order to keep them out unless they have a genuine commitment. I love the statement, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That term, the Son of Man, first appears in Daniel 7.13. Daniel was prophesying that the Messiah would be the Son of Man. And when Jesus came, he said, I'm the Son of Man. That term is used 84 times in the Gospels. Jesus affirmed that he was the Son of Man, the Messiah. 
What is it? It's a term of his humiliation. Son of God speaks of his deity. Son of man speaks of his humiliation. He is saying, in my humiliation, I don't have what the foxes have. The foxes were very common in those parts of the world in those times, and they would burrow little holes in the ground, and birds were everywhere, and they had their nest, and he says, I don't even have that. In my humiliation, I don't have the basic comforts of life, and if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to be willing to give those up. In Matthew 10, 16, he told his disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's, that's not a very inviting thing, is it? And then he followed that up by saying, But beware of men, for they'll hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you'll even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. And then in verse 22, he says, you're going to be hated by all because of my name. In verse 23, he says, they will persecute you. And then he sums it all up in verse 24 by telling them, don't think you're better than me. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. In other words, they're going to come after you just like they're coming after me. In John 15, 18, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. In verse 20, he told them, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And then he told them, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering sacrifice to God. Paul told us in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, there's a price to pay to be a Christian. We have had the blessing of living in a nation in which persecution hasn't been an issue, but that day is coming, and I think we all see it. The recent changes in our culture in opposition to Christ and his followers have been vast and deep. I fear for my children and grandchildren, but that's how Jesus said it would be. All we can do is be faithful to our Lord and pray for his strength and mercy. So this guy wasn't willing to pay the price. He just wanted to reap the benefits of being one of the inside group following a popular teacher. Perhaps he thought Jesus was the pathway to health and wealth. If so, then he would have been another Judas, and no one needs two of those. So Jesus drove him away. It's like a young person who hears the stories of a pioneer missionary reaching unreached tribes and thinks, oh, that's what I want to be. That is, until he goes to the mission board's training camp and finds out he can't survive without running water and electricity. Or someone thinks they want to be a great athlete, but they aren't willing to sacrifice to the level that's needed to achieve greatness in their chosen field. I'm sure most of you remember the great Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps. To achieve his level of greatness, Michael Phelps trained in the pool six hours a day 365 days a year, averaging 80,000 meters, that's 50 miles of laps every week, as well as doing stretching exercises and eating a very rigid diet in which he took in eight to 10,000 calories a day just to keep from losing muscle mass. Before every competition, he spent two hours doing stretching exercises to get limbered up, 
And then he would spend 45 minutes in the pool swimming over 2,000 meters just to get warmed up for the actual race. That's the level of sacrifice it took for him to become the greatest swimmer of all time, winning 28 Olympic medals, including 23 gold. And following Jesus takes the same willingness to sacrifice everything else, if need be, in order to follow him. We do people a grave disservice if we lead them to believe that the Christian way is an easy way. It's not an easy way. I agree there's no thrill like the way of Christ. There's no glory like the end of that way. But Jesus never said it would be easy. He always said that you had to take up your cross. In other words, you need to be willing to carry your cross to your own execution. You see, people who want personal comfort want to do their thing. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They just want to add Jesus to their already established life pattern. Or they just want Jesus in order to fit into a certain stratum of social life in the area where they live. You see, I can take you to places in the South where the movers and shakers in town are part of a certain church or part of a certain community Bible study. So these kind of people think that if they join that church or attend that Bible study and claim to follow Jesus, they can gain the benefits that come with being part of the elite in that community. Jesus refuses them. They just want him for the comfort they think he affords. But the reality is that the true followers of Jesus have to give up their hold on everything to be his true disciples. The Christian life is not adding Jesus to one's own way of life, but renouncing that personal way of life for his and being willing to pay whatever that cost may require. There was another man present that day. We meet him in verse 21. He faced another barrier that kept him from following Christ, and it's the desire for personal riches. Verse 21 Another disciple said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now this man, like the scribe in verse 19, was a disciple of Jesus. That term does not mean that he was a true believer in Christ. It simply means he was a follower, a learner, who unofficially identified with him. At this particular time, Jesus has a lot of people following him who are at all different levels of commitment. That was very much the case throughout Jesus' pre-crucifixion ministry. But as they heard the hard demands of Jesus, many of them bailed out. In John 6, he gave the bread of life discourse about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It was very hard for them to understand it and to receive it. And then he told them that there were some of them who didn't actually believe in him. And then he summed it all up in verse 65 by saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from the Father. What happened? Verse 66 says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So they were following him and claiming to be his learners, but when his teaching got too difficult and too hard for them, they left him. They wanted an easy believism kind of message, and that's not what he was doing. So this guy is one of those kinds of disciples, but he makes what on the surface appears to be a very reasonable request. He says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. 
Now you say, well, that sounds like a reasonable request, right? You can't just leave the old fellow lying there dead. You need to have a proper burial. And in the Jewish context, that would have been particularly important because the Jews didn't embalm bodies. So when someone died, they usually buried them within a day. But not only that, Jewish tradition required that a person mourn for his or her deceased father or mother for a period of 30 days. You buried your loved one and then you spent 30 days mourning them. And by the way, Deuteronomy 21 and Ezekiel 39 told the Jews that the dead must be properly buried to avoid defiling the land. So the last act of devotion that a son had for his parents was to make sure he cared for their burial. So this sounds like a very reasonable request by this man. He recognized that Jesus is on the move. He's going to get in a boat and leave. And so basically he says, Lord, I can't come right now, but I'll catch up with you later after I bury my father. But there's a lot more here than meets the eye. You see, the phrase, I must first go and bury my father, is a colloquial phrase that was then and still is used in the Middle East to refer to a son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father dies and the inheritance is distributed. So obviously, such a commitment could involve a long period of time, 30 or 40 years, if the father was relatively young. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, a Swiss medical doctor, Theophilus Waldmeier, spent time in both Ethiopia and Syria as a missionary. In his autobiography, he recounts that he was speaking with a rich young Turk who he encountered in Syria. And he was impressed with this young man, so he invited him to go on a trip to Europe that was related to his missions work. Dr. Waldmeier thought he could disciple this young man and obtain further education for him, and when he finished, the young fellow could assist him in his medical missions work. The young man's response was, I must first of all bury my father. And Dr. Waldmeier said, oh, I had no idea he had died. I'm so sorry. I hope I wasn't too insensitive. And the young man said, oh, no, he isn't dead. My father's very much alive. That's just a phrase we use. I just have to stick around and fulfill my responsibility until he passes on. And then, of course, I will receive my inheritance. So when this disciple of Jesus says, permit me first to go and bury my father, what he means is, I've been waiting a long time for my inheritance and I don't want to lose it. Can I just hang around here until my dad passes away? You see, a man's inheritance was lost or reduced if he didn't fulfill his responsibilities to the family. So the phrase, I must bury my father, was frequently equivalent to, I want to wait until I receive my inheritance. Yes, I'm sure this guy loved his father, but the thought in his mind is, I don't want to lose my inheritance. He had money on his mind. And Jesus tells him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now again, that's a sharp statement. At first, it seems nonsensical. I mean, how can dead people bury dead people? Well, obviously, dead people can't bury dead people. That is, unless the first kind are spiritually dead. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's a proverb, let the spiritually dead bury their physically dead. This guy didn't want to risk losing his inheritance by committing himself fully to Jesus. Jesus. 
He wanted to be associated with Jesus in name, but the focus of his life was on his personal prosperity and well-being, not on serving the Lord. Like Jesus' earlier proverb, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, and this seemingly nonsensical expression, allow the dead to bury their dead, those are proverbial figures of speech. And this one meant, let the world take care of the things of the world. The spiritually dead can take care of their own affairs. In Luke's parallel passage, he adds that Jesus then said, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. In other words, let the secular world take care of its own affairs. You've been called to proclaim the kingdom of God. You're functioning on the wrong level. He's not saying that Christians are forbidden to go to their loved one's funerals. He's not saying that if you're a Christian, you're not supposed to make sure your father or mother receive a proper burial. It's a proverb, and what he means is that the world's passing affairs, the coming and going of people and the passing of fortunes from one to another is all part of a dead system. You're called to a living kingdom. Go and preach the kingdom. See, this man's priorities were messed up. He made his family a greater priority than following Jesus. On another occasion, Jesus told the crowd following him, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, the issue is loyalty to Christ above all else, including family, friends, and self-interest. That includes the willingness to sacrifice one's own life for him. Now what about this young man? What does it say he did? It doesn't say. Apparently he disappeared too. If he had stayed, I think either Matthew or Luke would have included it in their gospel account, but he disappeared and I think it was because personal riches, personal wealth and possessions were the big thing for him. He'd waited a long time for his inheritance and his dad was probably getting quite old and so he wasn't bailing out now. He, he liked Jesus' charisma and all the incredible miracles and the wonderful teaching and he wanted to be a part of that but he wanted his inheritance money. There was no genuine commitment to Jesus, only to money. Reminds me of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 who came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? From our perspective, that's fantastic. To most modern-day evangelists, they'd say, here's one ripe for the picking. What did Jesus say to him? Verse 21, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, is that how you get saved? Do you get saved by selling everything and giving all the money to the poor? No. But if your money stands in the way and your money is your God, you're going to have to get rid of that money in order to get saved. That was the issue. You don't get saved by unloading your money. You just get the thing that you worship more than God out of the way so that you can get into the kingdom. In this man's case, his money was in the way. And so he comes along and he says... I've kept all the law. I want eternal life. And Jesus, knowing exactly what's going on in his life and in his thinking, says, okay, take everything you have and give it to the poor. He hit him right in the weak spot because verse 22 says, 
But the, when the young man heard that statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He was sorrowful that he couldn't get into the kingdom because he wanted to hold on to his money. What a fool. But a lot of people are like that. How sad it is. Personal comfort and personal riches stand between Jesus and many people who come to him. They're attracted by him. They're astounded by him. They're overwhelmed by him. But they walk away lost forever because the price is too high. There was a third guy who was there that day, but Matthew doesn't mention him. However, Luke does. So let's look at Luke 9, verses 61 and 62. This man faced the desire for personal relationships. Luke 9, 61 and 62. Here's what Luke writes. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now when we read verse 61, we think, why not? Run home, say goodbye to your parents, kiss your mom and dad goodbye, and run on back to Jesus. I mean, after all, it certainly isn't the same as going home to wait for your father to die in a few years so you can collect your inheritance. At most, we're talking about a few days, a few weeks, perhaps. But notice Jesus' answer in verse 63. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus answers the man by drawing on and adapting an old proverb from 800 B.C. that they all knew. It was a common expression in those times. The original version by the Greek poet Hesiod said, you can't plow a straight furrow when looking backwards. Now, I don't have any experience personally with doing that, but I recall an incident that occurred when I was probably 10 or 11 years old. We went over to southern Polk County near Frostproof, where my mom's oldest sister and her husband, my aunt and uncle, owned a 30-acre citrus grove. And their youngest son, my cousin, was about seven and a half years older than me, so he was around 18 at the time. And on the day we were there, my uncle told my cousin to go plow a section of ground in preparation for planting a new section of orange grove. And my cousin invited me to join him on the great big John Deere tractor that they had while he plowed the field. And so I climbed up next to him and away we went. And I was standing on one side of him, leaning against the fender of one of the tractor's rear tires so that I could look both forward and backward as he plowed. And one thing that I noticed very quickly was that he plowed perfectly straight rows. And he never looked back behind him. So when we got turned around at the end of a row, I asked him how he plowed such straight rows. And he told me, I look all the way down to the other end of the field and where I'm headed and I pick out something to focus on and I never take my eyes off of it. If you look back, you'll plow a crooked row every time. I never forgot that. You must keep your focus on where you're headed, not where you've been. It fits perfectly with what Jesus said to this young man. It pictures complete dedication to the task at hand. It's impossible to follow Christ with a divided heart. And that's what was this young man's problem. 
He's telling Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go tell my family goodbye. Personally, I don't think he's talking about his wife and children. I think he's talking about his parents. I think he was still under the domination and influence and control of his parents, grandparents, and possibly his siblings. In Greek, the verse says, to the ones in my house. Jewish homes were often the residence of several extended family members. It was common to have multiple generations all living in the same household. Jesus knew that if he went back there, he was still attached to his mother's apron strings or was susceptible to the intimidation of his father or to the emotional pleas of his family to stay and he would never come back. There are a lot of people like that. They understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's salvation in no one else, but they won't go to him for salvation because they're afraid of what their family might say or do. They're afraid to be alienated, and so they stay in a false religious system. But sometimes those people who are in those false religious systems, but who recognize the truth about Christ and the gospel, will show up occasionally in a sound Bible teaching church just to try to salve their conscience and in a sense they're trying to plow a furrow looking backwards. The cost of remaining with their family instead of following Christ is just too great for them. I've seen this in staunch Roman Catholic families and I know Pastor Steve has seen it in Jewish families and some Jewish, some Orthodox Jewish families, they actually hold a funeral for the individual who converted to Christ because they consider the person to be dead to them. Most of you know that there's a large Greek community in the city of Tarpon Springs here in our county and having grown up and lived here my entire life, I've known and worked with many who were a part of the Greek Orthodox Church, a church which teaches a works-based salvation. And I know some who have heard the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but can't bear to turn their backs on their families to follow Christ because they know they would be ostracized and cut off from them. And our family missionary, Daniel Maroulis, who ministers to the Greek people, has told me that he has had that same experience with many in the Greek Orthodox Church. Their desire for personal relationships is greater than the desire for Christ. Listen, it comes down to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 to 37. He said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If your family is that which holds you back from complete commitment to Jesus Christ, you are not fit to enter the kingdom of God. Now this passage is not talking about vocational Christian service. It's talking about salvation. You can't get saved with those kinds of strings holding you back. So far as Jesus is concerned, half-hearted commitment is no commitment. Because this guy could not commit everything, including his personal relationships to Christ. Jesus offered him nothing. No halfway discipleship, no halfway anything. Personal comfort, personal riches, and personal relationships all stand in the way. You say, but doesn't it say in John 6, 37, the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out? Yes, it says that. You say, but these people came and he cast them out. 
Yes, but if you keep reading in John 6, you find him saying in verses 53 and 54, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What did he mean by that? He means you either take all or you get nothing. Belief in Jesus Christ is an all or nothing proposition. It's total identity with him. There is no such thing as partial belief or partial salvation. And so verse 66 says as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They weren't willing to make the full commitment and he turned them down. Coming to Jesus Christ is coming on his terms, not our own. The person who comes with full surrender, with a beatitude attitude, poor in spirit, mourning over his sin, meek before God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, crying for mercy and willing to be persecuted, hated and reviled for Jesus' sake. That's genuine salvation. Stories told of a slave master who went to one of his slaves one day and he said, you have a joy and happiness that I wish I had. What is it? Slave says, it's Jesus Christ. He said, I want the Christ you have. Slave said, then go put on your white suit and come down and work in the mud and you'll meet him. He said, I wouldn't do that. That's beneath my dignity. A year later, he went back to the slave and he was in deeper problems and he said, I want what you have. And the slave said, what I have is Jesus Christ. The master says, well, how can I know Christ like you do? And the slave said, you put your white suit on, you come down and work with us in the mud and you'll meet him. He says, I won't do that. In desperation, sometime later, he came back a third time. He said, I have to have what you have. And the slave says, well, you know how. You get your white suit on and you come down and you work with us in the mud and you'll meet him. And the master said, I'll do it. And the slave says, you don't have to. Master says, what do you mean you don't have to? The slave says, you just have to be willing, that's all. You see, the Lord may not want to take away your personal comforts. He may not want to take away your personal possessions. He may not want to take away your personal relationships. But you have to be willing to let him do that if he wants to. That's the affirmation of his lordship in your life. If you come saying, I'll come, but I'm hanging on to this, or I'm hanging on to that, or I'm hanging on to this other thing, and you give him half a heart, you get nothing. If you offer him everything, he may allow you to keep everything you have. Or he may take it all away. Or he may give you more than you have ever had or could imagine. It's the willingness that is the issue. Otherwise, he's not Lord no matter how much allegiance to him you profess. These three walked away. William McDonald, the former president of Emmaus Bible College, aptly says, they left Christ to make a comfortable place for themselves in the world and to spend the rest of their lives hugging the subordinate. What an accurate statement. One more quote in closing. This one's from Bishop J.C. Ryle. He wrote, The saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, 
and through the middle of warnings and invitations. I sincerely wish no one in this room was in that category, but I'm not so naive as to believe that. So if you believe that you are, please come see me after the service and I'll direct you to one of our pastors who will be happy to share with you how you can truly have eternal life. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we recognize that there is a far greater cost to discipleship than many people understand. There's so many things in this world that draw us away from truly following Christ, even more than just the three things we saw this morning. Father, I pray that no one here will allow the desire for comfort, riches, or relationships to stand between them and Christ. May each of us examine our hearts, make certain that we have not held back any part of our lives from his sovereign authority and control over us. Draw to Jesus Christ those whose hearts you have prepared. May they come in repentance and faith to him. Lord, we know that living a Christ-centered life is going to become more and more difficult in the days ahead. You told us in your word that it would be so. We pray that each of us will be faithful to follow Jesus every day, in every way, regardless of the cost. We thank you for this time we've had to gather around and be instructed by your word today. May we go forth to live in such a way that no matter what we do, we bring glory to you alone and not to ourselves. In the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.